Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, How to Avoid OSHA Top 10 Violations, sponsored by KPA. My name is Kevin Drooley. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well amid the evolving COVID-19 pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. For reference, the slides for today's presentation are available for download and can be accessed via the resources widget located on your screen. For basic troubleshooting information, please click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today will be Micah O'Shaughnessy. Micah is a certified safety professional who has been in the environmental health and safety field for 12 years, including the past six as a risk management consultant at KPA. Micah assists clients in general industry, construction, and manufacturing with developing and implementing environmental and safety programs, loss control protocols, and incident investigation procedures. Micah, we thank you for being here. Whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate the introduction. I'll be uh, leading all of our attendees through today's presentation. Uh, as Kevin reiterated already, um, if you have any questions uh, during the presentation, feel free to put them into the chat box. Because of the complicated nature of uh, environmental health and safety, if you could also plug in there your industry that you operate in, uh, it just gives me a little bit more context to make sure that I'm providing you with the correct answer, since some of these industries are regulated differently. Um, as Kevin mentioned already, I am with KPA. Uh, it stands for KIPP Prawl and Associates, but we just go by KPA. Um, uh, we are essentially a uh, safety company that comes on site and consults for you uh, with the goal of preventing accident and injuries, assisting you guys in reducing lawsuits, fines, and penalties, or eliminating those things, improving your productivity, and protecting your reputation. Uh, we really do that through a couple of different methods. Uh, we have an online software that uh, would be provided to you as a client, uh, if you were a client of ours, and uh, training, and then expert uh, safety consultants. Uh, I am actually an on-site consultant that visits my clients physically at their location and provides recommendations for them. Uh, so that is who I am and who KPA is. And without further ado, we'll jump into the presentation and uh, talk about OSHA's top 10 violations. So here's our agenda today. We'll talk about those aforementioned violations. Um, and then we'll talk about some best practices for each violation. Um, essentially, the top things you can do to help prevent yourself from having a violation or an injury associated with any of that uh, area of compliance. Uh, we'll talk about how KPA can help uh, at the end, we'll have a bonus for you where essentially we'll send out a packet that uh, details all of these top 10 in greater detail since we only have you know, a limited amount of time today. And then we'll cover whatever questions um, you've provided to us as much as we can. Again, I'll reiterate, make sure you include your industry in that uh, question. Okay. All right. OSHA's top 10. So every year OSHA puts out their top 10 list of the most frequently cited standards. Okay? This comes from two things. It's really uh, OSHA's initiatives. They really want to focus on issues that they've identified leads to uh, injuries and more importantly, fatalities. They want to eliminate any kind of fatalities in the system. 
so there are certain things that OSHA is looking for when they come out on site. And also there are things that are associated with certain high-risk industries where OSHA is more likely to be uh, because they're concerned about that industry's safety. The point of it is it's going to help alert employers uh, to these standards so that they know if OSHA is going to be showing up today, uh, what are they going to be looking for and or what areas should I be paying attention to. And I really already kind of reiterated the goal is uh, reducing preventable injuries and illnesses that can occur within these different industries as well. So, Jumping over to the list of the top 10. Uh, you can find all this on OSHA's website, but essentially they are calculating the number of citations they're issuing every year, as well as the regulation on, under which they are citing that. And then they just provide that top 10 list out to the public. We're going to jump into each one of these top 10 today. Some of them I'm going to spend a little bit more time on. Uh, this is based off my experience in the safety industry and may not actually reflect your business or the safety issues that you deal with. So if there's something that I skim over that you find particularly important, please feel free to shoot a question in there. Um, I'll do what I can to provide you additional information. Uh, but I want to make sure that I'm focusing on things that I feel will affect the majority of industries. Um, why is this information important to you? So why are you attending this webinar? Why are the top 10 industries important? Um, uh, penalties for uh, violations under these top 10, uh, they, the maximum for an initial violation is $13,000, so a little bit less. Um, but it can be issued in a couple of different ways. So it can be levied per day, and it can be levied per violation committed. So you could potentially uh, have an inspection by an OSHA inspector, and they write you multiple violations underneath the same code. And then they can, from there, say, this violation is going to um, be a rolling violation where you're going to get fined that amount every day until that issue is addressed. Uh, it's also important for locations that uh, or industries and businesses that have more than one location because if they write you a violation at one site and that violation is then mitigated and you deal with informal conferences with OSHA and pay your fee and it's closed out, if they come back to that location and notice the violation again or if they go to another physical location that's managed by the same business, the penalty goes up to uh, $134,937, because at that point in time, it's a willful or repeat violation. Um, so we especially want to avoid those. Uh, so let's jump into the top 10 now. All right. Uh, our number one and number eight is fall protection. So number one is actually fall protection in general, and then number eight is the training requirements. Throughout this presentation, you will hear me talk about training requirements at nauseum. It is a very important thing to make sure that your employees are continually trained and that they are receiving refresher training as well. So as you can see on the slides, uh, fall protection accounts for 25% of all violations and 36% of all fatalities. It is extremely important to protect your employees from falls, regardless of the industry. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, in this violation, OSHA is actually citing the construction violation. But if you are general industry or maritime or manufacturing or even mining, falls are just as hazardous regardless of where they're happening. What OSHA is looking for when they're doing these inspections, though, is they are looking for those high-risk industries such as construction, especially things like high-rise construction or roofing. Falls can occur off ladders as well. So if you're using ladders at work, regardless of their height, an employee is on a ladder, and next thing you know, they're not on that ladder anymore because they fell off, that will also fall underneath of fall protection. Wet working conditions can certainly uh, affect this as well. Um, 
in safety, you actually have three different types of um, falls. You have slips, trips, and falls that occur in different ways. Uh, falls are generally always um, prefaced by a slip or a trip in some way, but they don't have to be. A trip would be an employee is moving forward and their momentum at their foot is stopped and their uh, the momentum at their chest and head level continues either forward or backwards, so they end up tripping, and a fall results from that. A slip is a loss of traction. So wet working conditions result in a slip, and then you can have a fall from a height. Um, housekeeping can also result in additional falls as well. This is across the board, whether you're on a roof and you're trying to be as safe as possible, but you trip on something on the roof or your ladder isn't level because of poor housekeeping, it's very important to keep working areas clean. And uh, lack of protection systems is probably the number one thing I see, uh, especially in construction and roofing where an employee says, I'm just gonna be up there real quick um, or I'm not going anywhere near the edge. And protection systems should be used. They're defined in that situation that um, they should be there and they're not. So um, those are high risk signs there. Our uh, top three prevention tips to make sure that you uh, are not issued a violation for fall protection compliance is uh, identifying and eliminating any kind of fall risk at your workplace. That identification is extremely important. Training your employees to identify risks is just as important as you doing it. Uh, passive engineering system controls and fall restraint systems, things like railings, netting, uh, harnesses. Uh, your employees should be using those in certain situations. OSHA clearly defines what they are. But it's also very important that as a business, you make intelligent decisions of, is this a situation where I can protect my employee from a fall? And is it feasible for me to use this engineering system versus that engineering system? Okay. And as I told you earlier, uh, training workers on fall protection. That is the identification of fall hazards, the mitigation of fall hazards through passive engineering or fall restraints. And then whatever system it is you are using to prevent falls, making sure your employees are properly trained on that as well. Okay. Using a harness doesn't help your employee if they're not wearing it properly or if their lanyard isn't the proper load rating. So make sure your employees are properly trained. Okay. Training is so important that OSHA actually pulled it out and put it into its own violation that is number eight. So I will continually reiterate that. You'll be so tired of hearing me say it by the end of this presentation. So we've covered one and eight. Number two is hazard communication. Hazard communication is also known as right to know. Uh, that naming has kind of changed across the years. Uh, it's currently called the Globally Harmonized System for Chemical Classification and Identification. Um, you're not really gonna have to use that wording. Uh, it is um, shortened to GHS or HAZCOM or hazard communication always works as well. There's a couple of things that uh, apply underneath the hazard communication standard. Mostly this is your chemical safety labeling and identification standard. So for you as a business owner or operator, you wanna make sure that you have a safety data sheet available for every chemical that's on your premise or any chemical that was on your premise for a certain period of time. Okay. You must also have a written hazard communication program as well, and you need to train your employees on that hazard communication program. The most important thing to train your employees on is first aid responses, if they're potentially exposed to a chemical, and how to properly label those chemicals so that they can get the right information that they need if they are exposed. Violations under this standard happen because of improper or lack of compliant chemical labeling. In the past, 
Uh, it used to be just perfectly okay for you to pull out a Sharpie marker and write the name of the chemical on the side. Those chemical uh, labeling regulations have changed when we adopted GHS, and now those chemical labels are much more comprehensive. So if you are a business that is using a secondary container, which is a container you would have to label yourself, make sure you familiarize yourself with the chemical you're using and then properly label that secondary container. Violations also happen because a lack of the written program or a lack of training or ineffective training. A lot of the time I see clients who are training their employees, but it is not effective and therefore their employees are not doing anything to comply with the regulation themselves. Uh, risk signs uh, that you are at risk of receiving a violation. Um, you work with chemicals. I would say almost every industry that I work with works with chemicals in some degree. Uh, if you don't have a plan or your employees don't know where that plan is, you're at risk. And if your safety data sheets haven't been reviewed and updated. Those of you who used to know the system is right to know we had MSDS system or MSDS documents. We've dropped the M and standardized that paperwork and changed it to SDS. So if you have old paperwork, it may be important for you to go back and uh, acquire a new safety data sheet. Okay. You can learn more at uh, OSHA's website that we've listed there. You guys will get a copy of this presentation and you'll be able to review it at that point in time. Our prevention tips to keep you from getting a violation underneath the HAZCOM standard is uh, do all employees and contractors have access to a safe data sheet for each chemical on site? Have your employees been properly trained on hazard communication? And have you provide your, provided your employees with a system for labeling their secondary containers? Once again, a secondary container is when you take a chemical from the container that the manufacturer or distributor provided you with, and you put it into your own container, such as a spray bottle or a jar. I always reiterate to my clients when I'm giving hazard communication training that beverage containers cannot be used for chemicals under any circumstances. Um, the number three violation is scaffolding. Scaffolding is primarily used in construction, but I've seen it used in all kinds of different industries uh, in order to provide access to employees. Violations in scaffolding happen because of, uh, mostly because of upkeep of equipment. Okay. Planking giving way, uh, the scaffold itself wasn't constructed properly, Maybe it's not level. Maybe the equipment or load that you're bringing up on the scaffold is too high for the scaffolding structure itself. Okay. Slips and trips on scaffolding can lead to falls. So we now um, work together again, violation number three and violations one and eight. And you can have potential falling objects coming off of the scaffolding. Our high-risk signs are uh, you work in construction. That's going to be a recurring theme as well. If your equipment is old, if you're not a securing equipment when it's at height, uh, poor weather can actually attribute to that as well. Again, weather increases the likelihood of a slip. Training shows up here again if you have poor, inconsistent, or ineffective training. And you have the improper person in charge of the system. You should have a supervisor that is familiar with scaffolding and is uh, performing inspections and reviewing the scaffolds to make sure that um, everything is being completed properly. Okay. Top three prevention tips are, can my scaffolds bear the necessary weight? Are they constructed for the job that I will be performing? Are my employees trained on the scaffold? 
do they know what that necessary weight is? And then is the equipment being inspected regularly and is it being documented? As I said on the previous slide, I see a lot of violations happen simply because the equipment is not in good condition. So make sure those inspections are being performed and documented on a regular basis. <clears throat> Pardon me. Our next violation is lockout tagout violation. And your industry may or may not be using lockout tagout. Generally, where I see lockout tagout being used is in any industry that uh, has high electrical charges on their equipment or they are maintaining moving equipment, such as in manufacturing. But lockout tagout uh, is becoming more popular due to the fact that there are uh, increased number of industries working with uh, data servers, um, computers, where it is extremely important that those computers and servers stay powered on. Uh, those of you who are unfamiliar with lockout tagout, it is essentially that a piece of equipment, when it is being worked on by an employee, it's completely locked out so that it either can't turn off or can't turn on, whichever is the safest method. And then that lock is tagged by the employee saying, I'm working on this equipment. It can be applied to additional um, industries, but primarily, as I said, it's going to be major manufacturing or electrical control. Again, we're, violations are going to be happening because of things not being documented properly. If you are not filling out your tag out, an employee may come along and say, I don't know whose lock this is, and remove it, which they shouldn't do. Because they've not been properly trained, they're doing something incorrectly. The identification of all hazardous energy sources. There are two different types of energy sources. There's potential energy, which is energy that is stored and can be released. Think of something falling. And then there's also kinetic energy. Kinetic energy is something moving. Okay. Uh, so kinetic energy would be essentially, I flip a switch and the electricity turns on in this um, uh, press and someone is in there working within the press. Maybe they're maintaining it. Okay. It's extremely important to have the correct lockout tagout devices for your industry or your piece of equipment. So often I see employees using zip ties. That is not a proper lockout tagout device. Make sure that you're defining a proper order for lockout tagout steps. We've provided you with a quick order on this slide. I'm not going to drop down through that order. And it may vary depending upon the equipment you're using, both what you're working on or maintaining and the lockout tagout equipment that you have in place. I've reiterated some of these risk signs already. You're working with a lot of machines high-maintenance equipment. Uh, those are potential risk signs. Uh, training is very, very important for lockout-tagout. And part of that training system is an auditing system as well. There should be a program manager for lockout-tagout, and that program manager's job responsibility is making sure that employees are going through the correct process to keep other employees safe. My top three prevention tips is um, having procedures in place for every machine. And it can even be detailed as every maintenance process that you have. You know, whether you're changing an air filter or um, changing a belt, and maybe you are um, removing a component and replacing it with a new component you can detail procedures for each one of those processes. 
making sure your employees are trained on those processes as well as how to properly lock out tag out is important as well. It is extremely important to have a system in place to ensure employees are safe if a process that you've defined has been broken. For instance, if an employee locks out a machine and then that employee is terminated, you would normally have a process that no one else can remove that lock except that employee. You need to think of situations like this and you need to have a process in place to make sure that everything is done safely when you break the rules. Because those situations are going to arise. You're going to plan for almost everything, something's gonna happen and you're gonna have to break the rules that you've put in place. You need to have a process to make sure that that's done safely. Moving on from lockout, tagout, we move on to respiratory protection violations. Respiratory protection is any time your employers, your employees, pardon me, have to wear a piece of equipment that is going to be either filtering the air around them or is going to be providing air to them in a system preventing them from being exposed to harmful substances. So we've listed a couple types of respirators there. The important thing with those respirators is making sure that you have a documented respiratory protection program and you are fit testing your employees to properly wear those respirators. Currently, we are in a very unique situation with coronavirus occurring where fit testing should not be happening because of the potential cross-contamination of coronavirus. OSHA has said they will not issue violations for fit testing lapses as long as the, empl the employer is complying with all other regulations in good faith. So make sure all of your T's are crossed and your I's dotted with all the other requirements for respiratory protection. And then once coronavirus is over, hopefully soon, resume fit testing. A lot of employees will start wearing a respirator without having medical evaluations performing. Unlike a face mask, which is a response to coronavirus, a respirator can cause stress to the body of the employee wearing that respirator. They need to be medically evaluated beforehand to ensure that they are healthy enough to wear the respirator under the conditions that you are putting them in. For instance, this gentleman here, he's wearing a respirator, but he also has a, uh, a suit on, maybe that suit is gonna raise his body temperature, put him under more stress, increase his heart rate. Um, you need to make sure he's healthy before doing that. Okay. And then you need to train your employees to make sure that they are wearing and utilizing their respirator properly. Not all respirators will protect your employee from all hazards. There are certain respirators designed for certain hazards and your employee needs to know what is this respirator going to protect me from and what will it not protect me from. Uh, your risk signs. If you're in a paint industry, you're gonna be in a high risk industry right there. Yeah. Paint, asbestos, um, hazardous atmospheres, chemical manufacturing a lot of time, uh, commercial baking, Anytime where you have airborne hazards that your employees can potentially be exposed to, you're in a high-risk industry. You're at risk of a violation if that equipment is in poor condition. So it's important for you to inspect your employees' equipment and replace it as necessary. Wearing a respirator gets more difficult as employees work longer hours. So make sure you're taking that into account and then make sure your employees are properly trained on the equipment and what they should be doing in certain situations. They need to know when they have to wear a respirator, why they have to wear a respirator, and how they have to wear it. All right.
our prevention tips on that are, are your employees trained? We talked about that once already. Are they using the correct respirators? And is the equipment being tested properly? If it's a sealed face respirator, which is what the gentleman is wearing on the left side of your screen, you need to do fit testing. Your employees should be doing a positive and negative pressure check every time they use it. If it's a supplied air system, is the equipment being maintained? Are the filters in good condition? Is it creating the right amount of a pressure? Our next section is ladders. And this section correlates with fall protection and fall protection training to a high degree. So again, we're wrapping together section six and section one and eight. Ladders affect almost every industry, from retail to construction to manufacturing. If you don't need a scaffold, but you need to get up high, you're probably using a ladder. And you need to make sure that your employees are correctly using a ladder. It sounds kind of silly, because most people use ladders in their everyday life. Uh, but complications with workplace ladders can be more severe. Uh, violations with ladders generally happen because of the equipment itself or the employee not using the equipment properly. Okay. Um, if the ladder is not tall enough, employees constantly stand on top of the ladder. I see pictures of it all the time. You know, someone's running Ethernet cable and they're standing on the very top step of the step ladder. If you read the instructions for your ladder, generally that top step is not approved for load bearer. Okay. In some instances, the second to last step is not approved for load bearing either because your employee is working at such a height that the ladder is designed for them to hold on to it. Okay. You should make sure they're using the proper ladder for the purpose that, in which they are intending it to be used. A-frame ladders, which is what the gentleman is carrying in the left-hand side of this slide, are not designed for you to climb and then get off of them. You should use an extension ladder for that. And there are regulations concerning extension ladders, how high they have to go above the surface in which the employee is getting onto, what angle they should be at, and those vary by industry sometimes. Violations can also happen and injuries can happen because of structural defects. If at any point in time a ladder is broken, bent, um, a bolt comes out of it, a step starts to break, uh, the tread comes off the ladder, uh, make sure you are either properly repairing the piece of equipment or you are replacing it with a piece of equipment that is comparable. Your risk signs are um, industries where you're using a ladder. Sounds ridiculous, but it, you know, especially employees that are climbing ladders frequently, they tend to get very familiar with the equipment and then they tend to be lax because of that. Okay. Employees cutting corners. Now, I have this two foot step ladder, it's good enough as long as I stand on the top step where they shouldn't be standing. Not having enough ladders available or not having the proper ladders available can also lead to violations, injuries. And once again, we're talking about wet conditions where it can lead to slips on the ladder and then falls off of the ladder. A ladder has a different rating depending upon its weight. Every ladder that's used by a business should be at least 225 pounds of load rating. If you have employees that are larger than 225 pounds, my general recommendation is to ensure that all of your ladders will work for the employee with the highest load rating demand. 
And that way you don't run into a situation where an employee is using a ladder in which they are not approved to use, but the employee next to them can use. Uh, our top three prevention tips, inspecting every ladder before use is extremely important. And your employees need to be trained on this as well. A ladder can be damaged during use, and then an employee just stands it back up, and the next employee who goes to use it is the one that gets injured. Okay. I just talked to you about the necessary weight required by a ladder. And are all workers trained on safe ladder use? The majority of ladders are going to come with a safe use sticker, either under a step or on the side rail. In this picture, we have a gentleman carrying a ladder here that does not have any safety stickers on it, which would be a violation in and of itself. It must have its safety stickers present, and it must have a load rating sticker available to the user. You can replace those stickers, or you can replace the ladder in that instance. All right, violation number seven is powered industrial trucks. Okay. Powered industrial trucks is a really fancy way of saying forklifts. Okay. But it's a little bit broader than just a forklift because this regulation incorporates a lot of different pieces of equipment that if you looked at, you would say, ah, that's not a forklift. But it is regulated under the powered industrial trucks regulation. Okay. Why do violations happen? Uh, we have these three bullets here. I would say violations happen because employees are not trained on how to properly use this piece of equipment. Almost always. Okay. If your forklift is tipping over, it means the user didn't know the load rating of the uh, equipment or they didn't know the weight of the load that they were attempting to lift. Pedestrian accidents occur because the driver of the equipment isn't familiar with where and how and when they should be driving the piece of equipment. And the pedestrian hasn't been trained. Right? So if you're working in a facility where you have some employees that operate a forklift, but others that do not, it is still important for you to train all of your employees on the operations of the forklift and any kind of safety measures you've taken to protect pedestrians. And employees must be 18 to operate a forklift, and they have to be certified to do so. Nowadays, you can self-certify. You no longer have to pay a trainer to come out to your location and train you how to use your forklift. You can do it in-house, but you must do it properly. Okay. Risk signs for violations. Uh, if you're in a high-risk industry, such as warehousing, uh, potentially construction, uh, where you're using a forklift frequently, um, you, know, you may be at higher risk for violations. Again, we run into this poor, inconsistent, or ineffective training. Especially now that you can self-certify in-house, you need to make sure that your training is effective if you've designed your own training. Lack of certification, reckless driving. It's extremely important that the employees operating the equipment know in what instances failures can happen and how dangerous those failures are. And then poor equipment maintenance can lead to issues as well and violations. My top three prevention tips are, are forklift operators trained, certified, um, and have all of your other employees been trained on forklift safety as well. Are forklift drivers or operators wearing safety belts or harnesses? In instances where forklifts flip, the safety belt is designed to keep the employee in the cage that is rated for the weight of the equipment and its highest rated load. 
Everybody's natural instinct is to jump out of a piece of equipment that is flipped. And that is probably the most dangerous thing that an employee can do. And then have you put in processes to ensure proper use? Oversight of employees. Auditing them moving things. Okay. Supervisors. Uh, daily inspection checklists. The more oversight with a forklift operation, the safer they will be. Forklifts are heavy pieces of equipment. If you use them all day, every day, you may not think so, but they are very heavy and very powerful machines. So treat them as such. Yeah. Machine guarding. Um, machine guarding is uh, protecting moving objects. So this will affect a wide variety of industries, but it may be important in other industries than others. If you're in manufacturing, machine guarding may be of particular importance to you. Um, you know, if, if you're in retail, you may have machine guards out there, but you may not think twice about them. So any kind of moving powered equipment that you have uh, where someone can potentially be cut or pinched or crushed, there are most likely machine guards in place. Okay. Violations with machine guard happen because of uh, lack of safety controls, okay. human error, inconsistent training, and all of this can fall underneath of uh, misidentification of machine guards, not even noticing that you have a guard in your workplace or what it should be there for. Okay. Your high-risk signs are uh, numerous industrial machines. Okay. If you are not familiar with machine guards, think about shop class in high school, if you took shop. Okay. A lot of manufacturing shops will look like shop class. Right? And all of those presses and saws and um, drills, they will all have machine guards designed to protect the user from the equipment itself. Okay. Risk signs are old machines or machines that haven't been maintained properly. And then I already mentioned training on machine guarding. <laughs> My number one prevention tip, identifying all of your machine-related injury risks and ensuring that guards are in place. training your operators on each piece of equipment and identifying to those operators each guard and why it's there. A lot of operators will remove a machine guard because they just don't understand what it's there for. And are your employees and the equipment that they're utilizing being monitored or audited in some way to make sure it's being used properly. Number 10. Number 10 is personal protective equipment. Right? You'll also hear me say PPE. Personal protective equipment is any type of equipment that an employee has to wear as a result of a hazard that cannot be mitigated through substitution, elimination, administrative, or engineering controls. Okay. So I spit a bunch of words at you. There is a hierarchy of controls that talks about how to eliminate a hazard or reduce risk to your employees. And it starts with the elimination of the hazard completely. If you can do that, then you're keeping your employees safe because the hazard is gone. If you can't eliminate it, can you substitute a less hazardous system? If you can't do that, or you can do it and there's still hazards, then you'd want to put in engineering controls. Engineering controls would be a piece of equipment or part of a piece of equipment designed to keep your employees safe, such as a machine guard. 
And an administrative control would be a rule or process you put in place that your employee has to follow in order to keep safe. A really good example of an administrative control right now would be social distancing. It's designed to reduce your hazard because you're not breathing potentially contaminated air that another human being is breathing out. If all of those things are not sufficient to eliminate the risk to your employees, you may require them to wear personal protective equipment. Okay. Personal protective equipment can be anything from the clothing your employee is wearing to the shoes, the safety glasses, to any kind of head protection, or a respirator. And I'm sure there is personal protective equipment out there that I did not mention. The majority of violations happen with personal protective equipment it occur because the employer has underestimated the risk of eye and face injuries. There are a plethora of situations where employees should be wearing safety glasses where they do not because they think it's uncomfortable or because they think it's unnecessary. Um, that's those next two bullets. You know, the employee has to make smart decisions about personal protective equipment. And unfortunately, it's the employer's responsibility to make sure that they are doing so. And that they are properly trained on all of the personal protective equipment that they are provided. Regardless of whether it is an employee-provided PPE or an employer-provided PPE, they still need to be trained on it. Uh, risk signs for personal protective equipment evaluations. High-risk industries are those industries where personal protective equipment is simply required all the time. That's more industries than you probably think, though. If you've not performed a hazard assessment, which is essentially what I walk through with elimination, substitution, engineering controls, administrative controls, PPE, um, you know, you may not have gotten to the point where you've decided an employee needs PPE. If you're working with hazardous chemicals, you should be wearing personal protective equipment. And then poor condition of that equipment can also lead to violations. Um, our top three prevention tips for this slideshow are, has your facility completed a hazard assessment? KPA can provide assistance with hazard assessments. Are all employees properly trained on their personal protective equipment? And are employees wearing the proper PPE while performing eye-threatening activities? There are very few injuries that are worse than an employee losing an eye while they're doing something where they could have been wearing safety glasses and they just neglected to do so. I mentioned real just a second ago how KPA can help with some things like a hazard assessment. But KPA is designed as a company to help you manage your safety program. Uh, we can provide you a platform to manage your safety program online as opposed to pen and paper. So we can automate a lot of the manual processes that you have put in place from programs to auditing to inspection to training. We perform all of those with the goal of reducing your total cost of risk. Total cost of risk can be a little complicated, but ultimately it comes down to not only your direct costs of getting a violation, but indirect costs such as you know, damage to your reputation, uh, employees losing time, and uh, morale. Um, as I mentioned already, we provide training and then we provide our consulting services. Okay. I could potentially be the consultant that would come out and meet with you on site and perform an inspection of your facility and provide you with direction on what things do you need to tighten up to make sure that you don't end up in one of these statistics or presentations or getting a violation in the top 10. 
And uh, my final slide here is about our bonus. What we'll be sending out to the attendees today is our OSHA Top 10 eBook, which is a summary of these issues and then a more comprehensive list of our uh, recommendations to avoid uh, having injuries or violations associated with these top 10. So that should be going out to all attendees. And then if you have additional questions or concerns and want to reach out to KPA, our contact information is there. Well, excellent. Great job, Micah. Thanks very much for your insights and expertise. Uh, before we do start the Q&A, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. Uh, your input's important because it'll help us improve future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, we ask you to please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. With that, let's get to some questions. The first one asks, are uh, SDSs required for every chemical or every product that is a hazardous chemical? What about Elmer's glue or dry chemical fire extinguishers or even printer inks? All of those chemicals are technically hazardous chemicals. So there are available SDS for things such as whiteout, and you should be maintaining those. Next one asks, uh, what is the definition of a competent person in regards to fall protection? What a wonderful question. So uh, there are lots of letters uh, asking for OSHA interpretation about competent person, and they leave it uh, mostly to the employer, operator of business, to make that determination. Uh, it is a responsible employee with the knowledge and understanding in order to perform the job function that is outlined for them. Again, you know, we get into that of, well, how do I determine their competency? It all comes down to can they perform the job and are they responsible enough to ensure that other employees are performing the job properly as well. Next question asks, do all secondary chemical containers need labels? Uh, yes, all secondary con chemical containers do require GHS compliant labels. There are a plethora of systems out there on the internet that uh, can assist you in creating compliant GHS labels. And all the information you would need to create a GHS compliant label is contained within a safety data sheet. Getting, getting back to those safety data sheets, this one asks, is it best to have hard copies of SDS or computer-based access? Uh, that will depend upon your business operation and your availability to internet access. OSHA no longer requires you to have physical copies as long as you can provide a copy within a certain period of time based upon the chemical and your industry itself. Uh, so it is perfectly acceptable for you to have all online if you want and have internet as your means of safe data sheet access. I would recommend having a specific safety data sheet database as opposed to just saying, well, Google is our solution. And then if that system is not working, you can potentially provide a, you know, a backup of a um, a flash drive, or you could have physical copies, or you could have contact information for the manufacturer that can provide you with safe data sheets at a moment's notice. So the most important consideration there is, do I have reliable internet access? And what if my building was on fire or there's a chemical spill where I can't get access within the building? Do I have it on my phone? Do I have it on a remote laptop? Is there someone I can call who would have it in the event of an emergency? 
right, well, we'll get back to uh, the Q&A in a minute, but wanted to put some questions out to, uh, to you folks who have a, have a poll question that should be showing up on your screens now. Just want to get your feedback. How confident are you that you have these covers, these, I'm sorry, have these covered, these items that Micah has been discussing? Are you very confident, somewhat confident, not confident? So if you could just take a moment uh, as we answer the next question, just uh, give us your thoughts there. Again, that should be appearing on your screen, and you can click uh, the Submit button after giving your answer. Next question now, Micah, is training required on all types or brands of forklifts? Uh, yes, training is required, absolutely. So there is actually um, two different types of training that is required for certification. You must have a classroom training, which is where you should cover issues specific to the types of equipment your employees are going to be using. And then you must have a knowledge assessment. The knowledge assessment is either going to be a quiz or I prefer an on-site evaluation of the employee actually operating the equipment that is uh, performed by a competent person. So for instance, you may have your warehouse manager who's been operating a forklift for 30 years do a classroom training with all of the employees Classroom doesn't specifically mean, hey, you have to go to a classroom. It may be still done in the warehouse where he's pointing out all of the safety things with the forklift and the proper operation and giving them handouts or operation manuals. And then he would observe and document his observation of each employee operating the forklift in a safe manner within the scope of operation. A forklift as well, the finest, since we're talking about training on all types of different forklifts, a forklift is anything that is, its movement is powered. Some of you may be using, um, um, what are they called? They're just jacks, but they have forks on them. And then the employee has to employ their own strength in order to push or pull the jack, the pallet jack. That's what it's called. That is not a forklift. They do not have to be trained on that. I still recommend you train your employees on how to properly use a pallet jack, but you do not have to go through the process of certification like you do with a powered industrial truck. When you stated that you do not require, um, you were, I'm sorry, this question is pertaining to fit testing. When, when you stated that you would recommend against it, is that from an N95 standpoint or could you clarify that a little bit, what you said about fit testing? Uh, yes, so there, uh, and if you Google this right now, OSHA has a guidance on fit testing during coronavirus. Currently, it is impossible for you to do fit testing for an employee without that employee directly blowing into the fit tester's face. So they have provided a enforcement exception for fit testing. Um, essentially, their enforcement exception explains that an OSHA inspector should not write a violation for lapsed uh, fit testing if the employer is performing all other compliance measures in good faith. So as long as you've done absolutely everything you can to keep your employees safe, wearing a respirator during coronavirus, there, there is an exemption for you. I cannot guarantee that it's a 100% exemption. It's just a directive from OSHA itself out to its inspectors saying fit testing may not be occurring because of coronavirus concerns. All right, well, we've got time for one more question. Um, does an online learning module qualify as a classroom training? Uh, yes, it does. So as long as you take an on, our system is actually an online learning module where your employees would take a generalized forklift safety training, and then you would have that second half, which is an actual observation um, and physical utilization of the equipment. 
Okay, well, again, thank you. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to, uh, to Micah today. Uh, as a reminder, if you haven't already done so, you may download the slides from today's presentation by accessing the resources widget located on the screen. Uh, and once again, and you'll see it on your screen now, we do hope you take the, the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. Uh, with that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Micah O'Shaughnessy, everyone at KPA, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, and have a great day.